You can turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 14, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your presence in this place amongst this people. Lord, we, uh, we come together to, to learn and to grow and to be transformed by Jesus so that we come together as the gathered church so that we can leave as the scattered church to go into all the world, make disciples. Father, we thank you for your grace uh, on all of us as we parent, as we navigate marriages, as we lead in the workplace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be talking about women again tonight. So if you missed last week, you should go back and listen to it because I gave all of my, I'm kind of an obsessive qualifier, okay, or a compulsive qualifier. So anytime I talk about something that could be potentially misunderstood, I spend more time qualifying what I'm about to say than saying what I need to say. Uh, So if you haven't heard that or if you're watching and listening to this later, Go check that out because I give all of my qualifications, okay? But tonight we're just going to jump into it. Uh, We're going to start off by looking at two of the most controversial passages in the Bible. And uh, and then from there, we're going to look at three people who you probably have never heard a sermon about them. At least I, I haven't. Um, And then we'll, we'll look at a few other things. So we're going to start in first Corinthians 14. And what we spent last week talking about and what we're going to spend tonight talking about is women in leadership, both in the marketplace and in the church. So 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 through 35 says, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also also says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. We're going to jump to 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 9 through 15, the other uh, controversial passage, and the one that's probably more, more commonly used in, in this debate, if you will, starting in verse 9. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. I kept wanting to say attire. Respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. If you're wearing pearls or gold in the room, don't freak out, okay? Uh, don't, throw, don't cast them at the altar, okay? Because someone's going to go and pawn them off. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So these are the passages we're going to look at tonight. Uh, We're not going to go line by line through them. However, I want to kind of focus our attention on this, what I think is one of the, if not the key question when we address this question of women in leadership in the marketplace or church. And that key question I think is, are these passages for all women for all time? So I think that's, that's the key thing because this is scripture, okay? We can't dismiss that. Uh, like this is, this is scripture. Uh, the question I think that is key for us is, are these passages for all women for all time? And because there are parts of the Bible that we look at and we know that there's something contextual about them that was applicable for a certain people for a certain time, but not necessarily for us today. And you may take the approach, and a lot of people do with this subject of, listen, I just do, like, I just do what the Bible says. Like, I, I want to go to a church that just teaches the Bible, okay? That's good, right? I want to go to a church that teaches the Bible. Um, and we, we say, like, I'm just going to do what the Bible says. Well, part of the problem there is that you don't, okay? Uh, for example, uh, if you ever had a kid, like one of your children, rebel, did you stone them? 
Okay? If you did, uh, yeah, so I think someone said wanted to, which, you know, that's a different message for a different time. If you did stone them, uh, you're probably, you know, having a thriving pr prison ministry right now. Um, but we look at we look at parts of the Bible like that and we go, okay, that's like, that was for a certain people for a certain time. Um, and not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. And not just randomly in the New Testament, but in the same letters as these two passages are. There are other things in these letters and other things in the same breath even uh, that we look at and we've gone, ah, that's, that was for them, there was something contextually, culturally happening uh, that was applicable for them at that time. And maybe there's a, a principle for us, wisdom in that instruction for us to learn and apply to our lives today. And we need to discern the spirit of the law through the letter of the law. And so some of those examples may be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul goes over head coverings, where he says like, hey, if you're a woman, it's shameful for you to pray without your head being covered. And if you're a man, it's shameful for you to pray with your head covered. And another thing that we see in the New Testament is in the, same, the passage that I just read, that is the passage that we use to say, hey, women should be silent in churches. They can't teach, they can't lead. Um, in the same passage, Paul instructs, hey, also don't braid your hair. Don't wear pearls or gold. Dress modestly, which I still like. There's, <laughs> please. And then, uh, and then, yeah. Uh, so don't wear all this. And then he also says, don't wear costly attire. Well, we're not policing that. I don't know any church that polices that. You know, at the door catches them. Hey, can you show me your receipt for your shirt? Um, also in the same breath, just verse eight, just the verse before um, our reading, it, Paul said, hey, I desire for, for men in every place to pray with lifted hands. We don't police that. Um, we don't require men anytime they pray to lift their hands. And so I'm not saying this to mock or to make fun of, like the people who, uh, again, I qualified that in the last sermon. I'm not going to spend time doing it again. Okay. I'm not mocking or poking fun. I'm saying that to say there are parts of scripture where we look at and we go, that was for a certain people for a certain time. And for us now, we have to look at that and go, okay, I see the, the letter of the law, but what's the spirit of the law? What's the principle that we can take from this and live out in our life? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And uh, we're going to tonight start off with uh, three people, three women in the early church who, again, you've probably never heard uh, a sermon on. And, uh, and they're all found in Romans chapter 16. So last week, we looked at what women did in the Bible from Genesis to Jesus. We looked at how women were prophetesses and they spoke for God and Deborah was a national leader. And we looked at all of these different things that, that women did and how Jesus related with them. So we're going to kind of pick that theme up at the beginning of this message tonight. So we're going to start in uh, Romans 16 with Phoebe. So Phoebe was a deacon and a benefactor. So the book of Romans was written by Paul. Okay, the apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians same guy who wrote 1 Timothy, okay? So the, the, passage that we, the passages that we just read uh, are written by the same person as Romans 16. And so we're gonna look at these three women who are all mentioned in Romans 16. It's the last chapter in Romans, and it's the part in every letter that most people skip, okay? How many of you can admit that whenever it gets to the names of like, hey, greet this person, say hi to this person. You're like, I'm, I'm just skimming. I'm checking out. I'm clicking the box on my Bible reading plan and moving on. Um, I'm putting it on two times speed on this part. So it's unfortunate because the, these parts of the letter are actually really important. They're really telling because it lets us know who he's talking to. 
uh, who he's interacting with, and it introduces us to these people. And I think that this is really, really important as we approach this question of, uh, and women, when it comes to can women lead in the marketplace, can women lead in the church? Looking at these three examples, I think is, is important. So Romans 6, verses 1 through 12, or 1 through 2. All of you kind of freaked out there for a little bit, reading 12 verses. Uh, so 1 through 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Cancrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her with whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. So I want to look at a few things that we can glean from this, this passage here. Also, let me preface this message with this. It's going to be really teachy, okay? A lot of content. So if like this is your first time or if you're new here and it's really like it's a dry as toast tonight, come back next week, okay? It's going to be a lot better. Uh, but uh, there's, there's a lot of teaching because this is kind of a technical subject. This isn't something that can just be preached because the, the point of this is for you, if you've come across this and you're wrestling with it and you have questions, or maybe you're in conversation with people that have questions about this, I want to give you something that's actually useful. Uh, so we're going to look at this. So Phoebe, Paul, same guy who wrote those letters, Paul refers to Phoebe as a deacon of a church. Now, deacon uh, is a word that can mean servant, uh, or minister. So the word deacon, the Greek word, is used in general ways in various places. So like the Roman officials in Romans uh, chapter 13 are servants, and it uses the Greek word here for deacon. They're servants at Romans 15. Christ is called a servant. Uh, there are multiple places where this term is used in a general sense for servants, but whenever it's connected to a church, it gives this, uh, this impression of it not just being a general term, but it actually being the title for someone who holds the office of deacon. So here, Paul's not just saying in general terms, hey, uh, Phoebe is a deacon, she's a servant, but he says she's a deacon of this church. So he connects it to a church, which is telling us that it's not just a general usage, but it's actually her filling that role. And she's probably filling this role because she displays the character traits and the leadership gifts that someone needs to have in order to uh, step into this role. And I wanna take a, a little side note here um, to talk about deacons and elders. So in 1 Timothy, okay, I can tell this is, this is getting, Boring. Okay. So, and it's okay. In first Timothy, uh, right after chapter two, where he goes through like what we just read, he talks about the roles in the church of elders and deacons. And he goes through this list of qualifications and things like that. For a lot of churches who, uh, who are on the side of this conversation that say uh, women cannot be uh, they can be in some form of, of leadership in the church, um, but they can't hold the title pastor. They can't teach. Um, and a lot of times what ends up happening is they give them the job without giving them the title, um, which I won't get into all that. But because leadership is, you, you don't become a leader when you get a title. Okay. Uh, a title doesn't make a leader having influence um, is what makes you a leader. You can have a title, but if you turn around and no one's following you, you're just going for a walk, okay? You're not leading, all right? So for a lot of the churches who hold the view of, you know, they can't hold the title pastor, they can't teach, um, it's, it's on, the, uh, on the issue of eldership because there's not a scriptural example of a woman being called an elder, and, uh, and that's kind of the crux of the, the argument in a lot of places. And they say, well, there's not an example of a woman being an elder, as well as one of the qualifications for being an elder that Paul outlines in 1 Timothy is you have to be the husband of one wife. Okay, kind of difficult to do that if you're a woman. So 
they say, well, because of that, they, they can't be elders. Well, that same qualification Paul gives for deacons as well. So if you go and you read it for the qualifications of deacons, Paul also says the husband of one wife. Okay. And so just, I think whenever we make the crux of this whole argument, this whole debate, if we make it hinge on eldership, I think we're missing the forest for the trees. Because when you look at the whole story, like what we did last week, when you look at how Jesus interacted with women, when you look at the examples that we're going to be looking at today and all the things that women did, and you say, you just wipe that all away because you don't have a woman being given the title elder, I think we missed the forest for the trees. So back to the subject. Um, I do want to, to mention this before we leave uh, Phoebe being a deacon. Phoebe wasn't the only deacon in, uh, in writing. There's a letter that Pliny, a guy named Pliny, which is a funny name. We're going to go over some crazy names today. But a guy named Pliny writes to Emperor Trajan uh, in 112 AD. Really interesting letter. Okay? He goes out on the scouting report uh, trying to find out information on what he calls the contagion of Christianity uh, because it's starting to spread. And he's like, listen, I need to tell the emperor because this, this movement is both in the big cities and in the small towns. And it's, it's causing an issue. And it, it's just really interesting to read. But uh, Pliny writes this in his letter. He said, I thought it would be more necessary, therefore, to find out what truth there is in these statements by submitting two women who were called deaconesses to the torture. But I found nothing but a debased superstition carried to great lengths. Uh, really interesting. So Phoebe isn't the only person that we see uh, historically referred to as, uh, as a deacon. The second thing that Paul refers to her as is a benefactor. So she was a woman of wealth. Um, more than any other title in that era, benefactor carried this sense of honor. Uh, it was by being a benefactor that people elevated themselves into positions of civil leadership. Um, a willingness to take what they had, uh, the wealth that they have, and distribute it to meet the needs of the community. And so Phoebe was a benefactor, which is a title of honor uh, to Paul and his ministry. The third thing I want to look at here is that Phoebe was, uh, was the letter carrier for Romans. So how letters worked in the ancient world was, someone would write a letter and then they would hand it over to a courier and the courier would bring the letter and then they would read or perform the letter to the audience. And so Paul gives his most, like his uh, most impressive theological work to a woman to take to the churches of Rome to read it. Okay. Uh, so that's telling us something. Um, yeah, so there's, there's Phoebe. The next person I want to look at is Priscilla, who was a teacher. Uh, so it's the next person that Paul mentions in Romans 16. And Priscilla, along with her husband, Aquila, uh, they were friends and, uh, and co-workers with Paul on his missionary journeys. They first met Paul in Corinth. Uh, Priscilla's husband and Paul shared the same line of work. They were both tent makers. And so they met in Corinth and then they traveled with Paul to, uh, to Ephesus where they were active in the missionary work. And it's interesting to me that those are the two places that Paul talks about silencing the women uh, for the reasons that we're about to see in a little bit. So Romans 16, verses three through five, here's another example uh, of Paul committing, oh, and greet Prisca, uh, which is kind of like, uh, like Kimberly and Kim, okay? It's, it's just kind of a, a different way of saying the same name. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus and who have risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, Greet also the church in their house. 
So Paul refers to Priscilla and her husband as co-workers in his work and also mentions the church meeting in their house, okay? It could be possible that they're just hosts, that someone else is actually like leading the church that meets in their house. But given their experience with Paul, they're co-working with him for uh, at least a year and a half and spending time with him. And what we're going to see Priscilla do here in a little bit, it's likely that they're not just hosting, but they're actually leading the church that meets in their house. Uh, and that, that's because of this. Look at Acts chapter 18. So if you want to find out more about Priscilla, you can just read the full chapter. But we're going to look at chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So here is an example of a woman alongside her husband uh, teaching theology. And not just to some schmuck, okay? This guy was, uh, I feel like, uh, anyway, I need to just keep moving on. Uh, Apollos was one of the premier teachers in the early church. And, uh, and she and her husband pull him aside and teach him. And it's interesting that you have this woman teaching theology to one of the premier teachers of the early church. And it wasn't, uh, it was alongside her, her husband. It wasn't, um, it wasn't domineering over him. It wasn't silently in the background. It was teamwork. They did it together. So you have this example of a woman teaching a man. Interesting. Uh, also worth noting here that Priscilla's name in both of those passages came before her husband's name, which is not unique, but it is unusual. Um, so this implies that either she was of greater social status, she had a higher social rank than her husband did, or more likely that she was more involved in the work of the church than her husband, who was a tradesman. Um, so it's just something worth, worth noting. Um, so again, we have an example here of a woman teaching and not, not silent or unmentioned, but alongside her husband in leadership and influence. The third one we're going to look at is Junia, an outstanding apostle. So this is an interesting one. Again, in Romans 16, verse 7, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who are in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So Junia here is a woman and an apostle. Okay, so we're going to break that down a little bit. Uh, we're going to start with apostle. So Apostle is like deacon. It's a word that can be used outside of the use of an, an office or title. It can be used to mean messenger. Um, again, with its, within the context of Paul going through people involved in church leadership in the church, uh, it seems to indicate that it's actually an office that she held. Um, another thing is that uh, some translations, depending on what translation you have, it may say that they were well-known to the apostles, which is a big difference, okay? Well-known to versus well-known among. And there's debate on that, on whether or not the apostles knew about them or if they were some of the apostles that were, were well-known. 
And uh, there's been a lot of debate on that. The consensus is, is that uh, they were uh, apostles. An interesting thing here, you think you have a long name. We're going to read a quote from a guy whose name is St. John Chrysostom of Constantinople. Okay. <laughs> so that's a really long name. Um, but the why it's important to read his commentary on this is because he's from the fourth century. He's a church leader. And because he knows how Greek language works better than anyone in the modern age, it's important to see how he read this. So look at this, this quote here from him. Greet Andronicus and Junia, distinguished among the apostles. To be apostles is a great thing, but, be, but to be distinguished among them. Consider what an extraordinary accolade that is. They were distinguished because of their works and because of their upright deeds. Indeed, how great was the wisdom of this woman that she was thought worthy of being called an apostle. So there's that. Um, so there were people beyond the 12, the 12 apostles uh, that scripture gave the title apostle to. And so the work of the apostles was, uh, was traveling and mission type work, uh, preaching and teaching and planting churches and leading churches. Um, so Junia was an apostle. Another thing is that Junia was a woman. Okay. May seem, well, I was going to say may seem obvious. I don't know what Greek male and female names are, so it may not be obvious. Uh, but here's what's, what's interesting with, with Junia. So depending on the translation you have, there's probably an asterisk or a footnote uh, that says Junia or Junius. Okay? Uh, Junius is a male name. Junia is a female name. Uh, so Junius uh, didn't come on. So the possibility of Paul, because as you can imagine, a woman being called an apostle kind of creates an issue. And so, uh, like, there was this proposal that maybe it's not Junia, maybe it's Junius. Uh, the first time that was ever mentioned as a possibility was in the 13th century. It was popularized in the 15th century. And uh, it wasn't until 1927 that you ever saw Junia or Junius uh, appear in a Greek New Testament. Okay? So I said all that to say, uh, that's kind of a recent thing. It's not something that was uh, around in the original manuscripts. Um, and so it's just really interesting that, I mean, down the road, they tried to change this person's name or just really change the identity of the person from being a woman to being a man. Because um, as you can imagine, depending on how you view these other passages, uh, this does not make a lot of sense. It's kind of problematic. Uh, so that was an example of Junia. Um, so Paul writes, women are to be silent in the churches. I don't allow them to teach uh, or exercise authority over men. So he writes those, but then the same Paul is commending a woman as a deacon in the church, as a benefactor, gave her uh, the letter, like his greatest work, and trusts it to her. Um, you see examples of women teaching men, and you see Paul referring to a woman as an outstanding apostle. And so reading those, it can create some confusion, right? It's like, what is going on here? And I think something that's helpful to, to make sense of this is all of that is true. Like, we don't need to just throw out parts of the Bible, right? Like, all of that is Scripture. So, in any story, any movie, any relationship, there's a part, so like, let's take a movie, for example. There's a part in the movie whenever two characters who are really close come into a conflict, okay? And maybe one gets really arrogant and proud because they think they're hot stuff and everything. And the friend comes and just lays into them, uh, corrects them, does whatever. Um, 
happens in pretty much every story. Happens in most relationships. You have these moments. And the deal is, if you took that one clip or that one scene and you pulled it out, and that's the only context you had for their entire relationship, then you would probably draw the wrong conclusions of the nature of the relationship. You would look at that and you go, man, they really do not like each other. Like if, if someone could just take a clip of your marriage, you know, for some of those segments, they may look at it and go like, man, they really, like, they really don't like each other. Uh, Abby just yells at me all the time. I need help. <laughs> she's, she's very aggressive towards me. Um, if you know Abby, you know that I'm joking. Um, but if you took that, a clip out, then you can look at that and it may have been the right thing to say in the moment of this person is acting out of character. And if they continue on that road, it's going to ruin them. And so someone has to address it. And if you take that and you just pull it out and that's the only context you have for the nature of their relationship, you go, man, like they don't like each other. That person's terrible. Um, And I think this is what one of the things that happens to us when we approach this topic with scripture is we, we look at these couple sections of scripture and we, ba- we base the entire framework we have of how God interacts and relates to and empowers and calls and gifts women based off of these two things. Um, but then when you look at the big picture in Paul's own words and actions, you see that, okay, there's probably something else going on here. Um, and so I want to just kind of touch on this. I would say briefly, there's no guarantees, but, um, but at the time that Paul, so this is something that I think will, will help make sense of what's going on here. So at the Paul, at the time Paul was writing these letters, there was a, a gender and sexual revolution taking place in the Roman culture. Okay. And so we're going to look at three features of this, uh, this revolution and these movements um, and how we can see that they would uh, influence Paul's address to women. Uh, the evidence that supports this movement is threefold. It's the contemporary writers of Paul, the poets and playwrights at the time, as well as uh, the laws that Augustus uh, legislated in order to uh, try to... Uh, legislate against the movement. Before I jump into those three, I just want to take a slight tangent here and say that Paul in these sections is addressing a, cult- a cultural issue. Okay. So we can look at Paul and say, man, Paul, just stick with the gospel, right? Like just keep talking about Jesus. And like this is in case you aren't connecting those dots. There are times whenever we as a church, we have to address cultural movements that are going on or things that we see culturally that are being widely accepted, but are incongruent with the way of Jesus. Okay. Because Paul's concern here was that these things that are culturally acceptable if they find their way into the church in the community of faith, then it's going to have a detrimental impact on the influence of the church. Uh, That it's actually going to damage the reputation of the church if they look no different than the world. So it's for the sake of the gospel that he addresses these cultural issues because it's going to damage their witness if they are following foot, like if they're following every step of the way of the world. And so just kind of, if you've thought that, if you've had questions, why as, as a church and for a lot of, for some of you, it may be, we need to do that more. Okay. Uh, For some of you, it may be, why do we do it at all? Uh, Address cultural issues. You may say, man, just stick to the gospel. Well, for the sake of the gospel, uh, we need to address some of these things that are uh, cultural movements and revolutions uh, and things that are being accepted and okayed at the cultural level and go, listen, even if it's, 
it means that we're not going to be popular. Even if it means we're going to be despised, we need to follow Jesus. And whatever cost comes with that, we accept the consequences. Okay? So that's why we, we address things off that onto the three things. Okay, so we're going to look at three things here real quick on uh, things were, that were a, a feature of this uh, gender and sexual revolution that were taking place. Uh, the first one had to do with dress codes. Dress codes. So the Roman women were expressing their newfound freedoms that they had uh, financially as well as socially in immodest, sexual, provocative, and extravagant dress. Uh, in Roman law, you were what you wore, okay? Uh, so what was happening in this revolution, this, uh, what, what some call this new woman movement, um, one of the things that was happening is that these women of high class were starting to dress like prostitutes and dressing uh, uh, provocatively, immodestly, and, uh, and like, again, in Roman society, you are what you, you wear. So, I mean, on just a sheer practical thing, uh, in Roman law, if a woman, if a man were to sexually violate a woman uh, and she was dressed in a certain way, like if she was dressed like a prostitute or in a provocative way, he couldn't be held legally liable legally liable for his actions because you are what you wear. And if you dress like this, then that means that's what you are. And I have the right to, you know, whatever, not saying that's right or wrong. Well, I'm saying it's wrong. I don't. <laughs> My point was to not provide commentary on that. Uh, it's wrong. It's interesting that, yeah, anyway. But the point is, when you go to Rome, or to First Timothy two, and you're like, "What in the world is going on? Like, why is he talking about dress code? You know, what to wear and what not to wear?" Well, it's because what was in vogue, what was trendy, was to start dressing very provocatively. And there was a there was a, a novel written in AD fifty that I'm not going to read, uh, but I'll paraphrase real quick. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, uh, but I'll paraphrase part of it that I think influences what, what Paul's after here. So in this novel, there's a young man and a young woman, and they're part of this procession that's leading up to the, the temple of Artemis, uh, which Artemis was the, uh, the goddess of fertility, most popular, like the goddess in, in Ephesus and uh, had a whole fertility cult around her. It was really messed up. But so they're going in this procession and they get into the temple. And in this novel, they lock eyes and, you know, they're like feeling the warm, fuzzy feelings. And, you know, at this point, it's like, okay, nothing wrong with that. Like come to church, meet people. That's good. Uh, like it's a great place to meet people. In fact, like in youth ministry, that's our, like that was our strategy. It was like, if you just get girls here, that's all you got to do. Like the guys will show up. Uh, if you can just reach girls, you don't have to worry about the guys. They'll come, they'll come. Um, but like at this point, it's like, okay, yeah, nothing, nothing too bad about this. And then it gets really weird. And then they're like, she starts talking dirty to them and starts exposing herself in a worship service to seduce him. Okay. And so Paul saying that, okay, well, if this is what's going to be okay in the most popular uh, form of worship in these cities, I'm going to make sure that people know that this kind of behavior is not okay in the church. Okay. We're not going to be doing this. Uh, this has no place in the church. And so uh, he's making it clear. Here's so again, we're after the spirit of the law. So whether you're currently wearing pearls, I don't think is as big of the issue. It's, we're not going to be doing this in the church. Like we're not, uh, I'm not going to get into the details there. I think you get it. Okay. If you don't, we'll set you an appointment with somebody. Um, 
the second thing that, that's going on here has to do with learning and teaching, submission and dominance. Um, so another thing that, that we see from contemporary writers from Paul's time, uh, we see a man named Juvenal who wrote this satire. And one of the things that he wrote in it was he was describing the, the behavior of women at dinner parties and symposiums. So these meetings that would be at people's houses where they come together and they have this, this party, this meal, and they sit down and they talk about deep things, you know? And he said that these, these women are now coming in and completely dominating the conversation. Like, like everything's good. And then you have, uh, you have, you know, this woman come in and just hogs the conversation. And she's correcting everyone left and right and getting, in, <clears throat> getting into the details. Like we could be talking about something really deep and philosophical, but someone used to poor grammar and they call them out on that. Uh, and uh, apparently not, nah, not going to make a joke. Keep going. Okay. So, uh, so he describes this scene and he said, what happens is everyone ends up just stop, like, everyone just disengages. They stop talking. They let her take over the, the floor, so to speak, and they check out. And he said, everyone despises this. Like, this is not why we came together. Uh, have you ever experienced a conversation hog? Okay, you get it. Anyone, the conversation hog? Like, are you the conversation hog? In um, life group, Pastor Lee would, uh, would do this like five minute timer and he would set it on everyone's turn. And he'd say, all right, you have five minutes to go. And you may think that that's really cold, but if you've ever been in a situation like in a life group or something where someone just won't stop talking, it makes a lot of sense, okay? So this was something that was happening and the setting for these dinner parties and symposiums was someone's house, okay? Where did the early church meet? In houses, okay? So Paul's concern here is that the same activity that's happening in people's homes with those kind of gatherings is going to start happening in the church's gathering in people's homes where someone comes in and just dominates the, the discussion. And this is, the, the issue isn't around engagement. The issue is around dominance. And that's why when Paul talks about women being silent, it's be quiet while we're teaching, okay? Like for the same reason, if in the middle of sermon, in the middle of the sermon, if people just started talking and asking each other questions, like while it's going, that would be disruptive, okay? So it's also interesting that in 1 Timothy 2.12, whenever Paul says, I don't permit women to exercise authority over men, the word that he uses for authority here uh, in this verse is the only time that Greek word is used. Um, other places he uses a different word for authority. It's because this word for authority uh, brings with it not only this, uh, this sense of authority, but an abuse of authority, a domineering, okay? So what he's advocating for isn't uh, to be completely disengaged, be quiet in the background. It's to not dominate, okay? It's also, uh, he promotes learning before teaching, because this is something that we talked about last week, where most of the women at this time weren't, uh, they didn't have the access to the education that the men did. And so they still had all these questions. And so in the middle service, they would be asking each other questions. Um, and so Paul's advocating for learning before speaking and not domineering. Uh, last thing, the, the third thing we're going to look at here is it has to do with childbearing. Um, so another feature of this new movement, this sexual and gender revolution that was taking place was an elimination of uh, normal sexual relations, um, a disdain for marriage, childbearing, child raising. Does this sound familiar? Okay. It's like 2000 years, same song, you know, I would say second verse, but we're way past that. Um, but kind of sounds similar. Um, another thing was, uh, was uh, abortion uh, was also uh, a feature of this movement. So 
we are doing away with normal sexual behaviors. Um, there's a disdain and a hatred for marriage that's coming with this movement, a disdain and a hatred for childbearing, child raising, um, a willingness to either prevent pregnancy through these means that they had or, uh, or aborting the baby and then also just leaving the baby for dead if they were to birth it. Um, these practices come out of the, or are associated with the, the religious cult with Artemis. And Augustus, the Caesar at the time, seeing what will come, like the inevitable outcome of this is not going to be good. Like if, if what is in vogue, if what is trendy in our society is for marriage and family to be hated, for people to stop having children and want nothing to do with children, we're not going to have a society left. And seeing the outcome of this, like even 2000 years ago, this guy could see the importance of the strength of the family. And what he did was he attempted to legislate against this behavior by giving legal incentives for people to get married and have kids. You'd become eligible for promotions and property ownership and things like this if you got married and had kids. Um, I want to read this letter from uh, Seneca, who was a Roman governor, and he wrote this to his mother. Now, keep in mind 1 Timothy 2 as I read this, this letter, the, the passage that we read at the beginning. So he writes this, Unchastity, the great evil of our time, has never classed you, he's writing to his mom, with the great majority of women. Jewels have not moved you, nor pearls. You have not been perverted by the imitation of worse kind of women that leads even the virtuous into pitfalls. You've never blushed for the number of children as if it mocked your age. You never tried to conceal your pregnancy as though it was indecent, nor have you ever crushed the hope of your children that were being nurtured in your body. You've never defiled your face with paints and cosmetics. Never have you fancied the kind of dress that exposed no greater nakedness by being removed. Your only ornament, the kind of beauty that time does not tarnish, is the great honor of modesty. Do you see there are striking parallels between this letter and Paul's letter to Timothy? Um, and I read that and I see, okay, well, there's, there's something going on contextually that, that Paul is addressing. Um, because as you're reading 1 Timothy 2, it's like, okay, women, here's your dress code. Okay. And then we're going to get into teaching and submission and dominance. And just so that you don't, just so you know that you're not hot stuff, uh, you need to know that Adam came first and then Eve. Okay. Eve transgressed. You're not perfect. So before you think you can dominate everything, just know that you, your poo stinks too, okay? <laughs> and, and so like, it's like, okay, okay, we're going. And then, and then it's like, hey, also, uh, you'll be saved through childbearing if you continue in these virtues. And you're like, what in the world? Like we went from dress code to teaching, submission to Adam and Eve, and now to, to pregnancy, it's like, what is going on here? And just reading that letter and seeing how many of the same things that, uh, that Seneca hit in his letter too, of addressing uh, virtues and values, addressing modesty, addressing uh, pregnancy and not being ashamed of it and not dashing the hope of your children, not aborting them. Uh, there's, they're addressing the same thing, the same kind of cultural issue that's going on. And so I think looking at the examples of what women did, so we're wrapping things up. When we look at the examples of what women did, uh, both in the Old Testament, how Jesus interacted with them, and the, the women that we looked at tonight in the New Testament. If you look at the full story and everything that's there, um, it's in contrast to, if you look at just those two passages, 
And you go, those two passages are for all women for all time. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, with the whole story of the Bible, as well as Paul's own words and behaviors. And so when we look at that, we need to discern the spirit, not just the, uh, the law or the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And go, okay, well, what, what are the principles within this that we need to live out and walk out? So things like uh, our worship, our, our gatherings need to be done decently and in order. That's the context for the first Corinthians 14 was around orderly worship. Okay. Another thing, another principle is Paul's advocating for learning before teaching. Okay. That's kind of a lost thing these days, but an important thing. Um, God always has, and he still is calling men and women to lead. I want to end with, with this story. Uh, the, fastest, <clears throat> the fastest growing church in the world is the church in Iran. Uh, in, the, uh, like in the heart of Islam is the fastest growing Christian church in the world. They have no buildings. They have no assets. They have no formal organization. They're disciple makers and God is doing something amazing. And the church is predominantly led by women. And again, it's not to say like, it's, it's not to push men down. Okay. What I'm doing is I'm saying we need to pull each other in. Okay. And stop this pushing each other down but pull each other in and see that God has called both men and women and gifted them with grace to lead, to lead in the marketplace, to lead in the church. These women who are leading in Iran are well aware of the dangers that they face, that any day, if they're found out, because the church has to be underground, that if they're found out, they will be raped, tortured, and killed. And they, they say, we, we know the cost, and we're, we've accepted the consequences because it's worth it. In the, one of the most oppressive places in the world towards women, God is using women to grow the fast, to, to be part of grow, being like the fastest growing church in the entire world. God is using the most oppressed people, the most down and out, to be part of establishing his kingdom on earth. Does this not sound like Jesus? This is what Jesus does. He takes nobodies with nothing but filthy rags and mistakes. And he takes them and he picks them up and he washes them clean, puts us on our feet, he says, walk with me, come to me. This is what Jesus does.